welcome to the Significant Strike Podcast. This is our first part two episode. We recorded part one and already put it out because there were some valuable odds that we didn't want our listeners to lose. I am Soft Weekly. With me, as always, as our extra expert handicapper, Val Dwyer. Val, how's it going tonight? It's going. Just watched a very bizarre PFL card. Um, man, yeah, excited. We got uh, a decent Bellator card tomorrow and then... Uh, I mean, the UFC card is great until you get to the main event. Yeah, that's kind of a dis- that's kind of a disappointment compared to what we were expecting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh man, this would have been one of the cards of the year if we had Sandhagen versus Dillashaw, but that'll be. I think that they're rescheduling it for next month. So yep. looking be- forward to that. Before we get into the card, I just gotta say, did you ever think you would be on a podcast that opened with an Elton John song from the seventies? No. Well, <laughs> I guess I never really thought I'd be on a podcast to begin with. So even that much yeah it's the perfect song it's saturday nights are right for a fight so i figured yeah. it was apropos since most of these do happen on saturday yeah all right um yeah, they I, do on part one we covered we covered uh the bet that we thought was important to get in you yeah. can uh, just recap the uh, what your bet was for the people and we also we also went over our record from last week we'll just say it was positive you can give our total up results or something you know just give them a quick recap yeah. in case someone's not we listening like, to both we were like plus 0.192 units we went 2 1 and 1 one push on the draw from Jalaba. Um, yeah, and so the last episode we discussed Diego Fajera versus Gregor Gillespie, my personal favorite fight on the card as far as excitement with coincidentally the best odds in my opinion on the card. Uh, and we have a two unit play there on D- Carlos Diego Fajera at plus 155. Uh, if you want to listen to my breakdown, go check out that part one. But here we are, going to go through the rest of the card. And at the end, um, so we've done this once before, a Bellator faves parlay. It's something I do whenever Bellator's on because favorites win 95% of Bellator matches, especially at favorites above minus 200. Um, there was a period last year where they went like 33 and one over the course of like a month and a half, something like that. Um, because Bellator matchmaking is like that. So we had one unofficial one before. Today I'm going to have our first official Bellator favorites parlay, just a half unit while we test it out. Um, and a couple UFC plays. So let's dive into it. All right. Start us off. Where are we going first? Going with Klein, Ludovic Klein versus Mike Trezano, which, uh, right now Klein is a two four minus 240 minus 250 favorite. Um, so let me talk about him and we'll see what we see. So he's, Five foot seven, but he has a 72 inch reach, um, which is, that's like, uh, five inches extra than his height. Yeah, that's, um, that's a pretty he, good reach. If he has a reach advantage in this one, um, yeah, one inch reach advantage is not significant, but in his debut, which was on the Adesanya versus Paulo Costa card last year, his UFC debut, he KO'd Shane Young, one of his teammates at City Kickboxing in like a minute and not many seconds or was a minute and 16 seconds head kick KO. It was insane. Uh, he did Shane Young's, I mean, he's not amazing. Like some of his, uh, CKB counterparts, but he is a good fighter. He did miss weight by five pounds. So that was his one concern, but he's looked good at the weight before. So I don't anticipate there being a problem with that moving forward. Um, he only has one loss in his career. It was a Renegade choke in Cage Warriors in 2017, but now he's on an eight fight win streak, which comes in only the last, uh, three years because 
Well, less than, okay. He fought six times in 2017, three times in 2018, two in 2019, and two in 2020 despite COVID. So that's a lot of activity. That's, what's that? That's 13 fights in just four years. Now he's having his first one here. Um, I like to see that. I like to see activity from guys as long as they're not fighting every week or whatever, because that are tournaments in the same night, because then their durability can be affected. Right, and no um, one, no one should discount six fights in one year. That's a lot of fighting. Yeah, and that was when he was on the the up and coming. I mean, now he's made it to UFC. He can afford to fight two or three times a year instead of six, but. It was good. I mean, he did really well. I mean, he he lost one fight that year, but the rest were. I mean, I think every some of these, you know, on, on these websites, they don't always list if it was a finish or a decision. But because of the regional scene being so small, they don't know. But in 2017, after he lost to Igor Tarza, he went on a three fight finish streak. I said before he only has one loss. He has two. My bad. Um, and then that, but that first one was on the regional scene. Then he goes up to ACB, gets two wins by finish, uh, a knee and a rear and a guillotine, then a rear naked choke in the first round, then loses by rear naked choke first time. Uh, he got finished in a major organization in Cage Warriors, and then he went to Octagon where he did most of his best work. Um, second, first round finish, fourth round finish, win by punches, his only decision win on his record, then first round punches. Third round head kick, first round head kick and punches, first round head kick and punches, that last one being in the UFC. Watched all of those fights in Octagon. Octagon spelled with a K, in case anyone's wondering. I, I think because the UFC has a copyright on the word Octagon as it relates to MMA. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a European, I think Eastern European, uh, fight organization. And they have, you know, not total cans. He was fighting, uh, like his first win in 2019. He was fighting a guy who was 13 and one. Fought a guy who's 39, 16, and 2. Um, and one of these guys, uh, and another guy who's 14 and 5, one of these guys was, I believe, a UFC veteran. But yeah, um, Lukas Sajewski, he was a UFC veteran, but he lost his three fights in the UFC. And we had cut him back in 2016. Phil Klein destroyed him with that head kick in round one. So I want to talk about his head kick because it is special. He's able to set it up really well. Um, I mean, he sets it starts with strikes, obviously, punches, obviously. Um, and because he's a southpaw, the most common punch he throws is his straight left because he most commonly fights orthodox fighters. The most effective strike from open stance matchups. Um, and he'll throw that left followed by the head kick, kind of like Robert Whitaker's famous one-two head kick combo. Um, and it's really special. I mean, it's worked for him clearly with at least five KOs by head kick on his record, maybe more. We- we can't tell him back on his amateur regional scene days. Um, but yeah, as a southpaw, he also has that open stance for big kicks to the body, which he, he uses quite well. Um, he establishes a long rhythm, which we've talked about long versus short rhythm in past episodes, which long rhythm meaning he bounces in and out and he hides those are used to A, slide out of range when his opponents punch because he's already bouncing and B, to hide his entries behind fake entries. In and out, in and out, in and out. Then you don't know when he's actually going to go in. And he hits hard with that straight left when he goes in. He has really good footwork. Um, always keeps his base behind him strong despite all the movement. Beneath him strong, sorry. Um, he also used te- uses teep kicks to the belly to sap the opponent's strength. He does use the jab, but it's a secondary punch to his, stri- to his straight left, which 
makes sense considering he's fighting against open stance matchups. Um, one interesting combo that I haven't really seen from any other fighter is him throwing a jab and a lead hook, like with the same hand. He has his left hand as a power hand, his right hand as his jab hand. So he throws a jab and then immediately, uh, uses it for like a lead check hook instead of throwing, uh, left, his left hand in between that. There's those two with his right hand in the same, uh, combo. It's really interesting. Uh, it's difficult to pull off. Yes. He, all in all, he's very patient while he's bouncing out in and out with that rhythm. He's looking for openings clearly. And then when he fires, it's big time explosion. I mean, I know a lot of guys get a lot of knockouts when they're fighting in the smaller organizations. And then it doesn't translate all the time when they come to the UFC. But his power definitely translates to the UFC. Uh, I mean, he fought, he was fighting lightweights outside of the UFC. Lightweights, guys with four or five inches on him in height and the same amount in reach. And probably 10 to 20 in weight because 155 seemed like his natural like he didn't seem to have to cut weight to get to 155 um but now he's down at 145 in the ufc which makes sense he'll be fighting a lot more skilled guys but he was knocking out these lightweights with no problems um and, and even the ones that didn't manage to have be durable and drag him into the second or third round like uh this guy who had 39 wins on his record that he fought uh was managed to survive to the third round and uh, Klein looked like the much, much fresher fighter. His, he definitely has cardio for a full 15 minutes, I believe. Um, and his hand speed is, is crazy. So I'm going to go over the KO of, of, of Shane Young because he, he did that jab lead hook combo I mentioned. And then he didn't finish there. He threw a back fist after hitting him with a jab, missing the lead hook, throwing with a back fist that was, Creative, interesting to see, and then followed that up right away with a head kick that stunned Young. Young stumbled backwards, and Klein dropped him with an uppercut out cold. Um, Klein also entirely avoids the hand fight uh, when opponents reach out for it, like someone like Justin Gaethje, who, if you see his fights, guys reach out their hands to begin the hand fight. He just says, "No, I'm gonna keep punching. I'm just gonna punch you." Um, in his octagon fights, he was great at avoiding encountering uh, pressure fighters punches when he was on the back foot. Although I don't believe he likes to be on the back foot. He can do it. Um, when guys would switch stances into close stance matchups to be Southpaw against his Southpaw, he seemed angry. Like he wanted to make them pay for putting daring to, daring to put their leg in front of him. And he would just kick the crap out of that, that lead leg until they switched back. Um, he also, he has good Muay Thai, Overall, but what he's able to use collar ties to land really massive knees. Uh, he's stunned people a couple times with that in the fights I watched. Um, the head kick versus that guy with 39 wins, Joao Paulo Rodriguez. Um, he, he clearly was able to read him, which suggests he has a high fight IQ because he's able to, he's able to make reads and process them. I mean, you have to have a somewhat high fight IQ to make it to UFC, but his striking intelligence is pretty high. He watched as in two straight exchanges, as he threw uh, straight punches, Joao brought his hands away from his head a little bit. And then the third time he was ready, um, he, he feinted that uh, straight punch and then threw a left head kick, knocking him out cold. Um, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I got a little lost in this wall of text I have here. Um, Kike, he in wrestling. I don't, I don't anticipate this to be much of a wrestling match because Trezano also likes the strike. He, he won the ultimate fighter. As a, a striker, although he does have, I believe, some wrestling background in high school. Um, but yeah, so 
Klein shows great, good takedown defense of at least of guys of that lower level who get underhook and underhooks and push them to the cage and then really, really make them pay by kneeing them against the cage in the clinch. Um, he, he's hard to try and trip. A lot of guys tried, uh, various types of judo throws and trips against him and, but his solid base that I mentioned before, uh, along with his footwork, it, it was hard. He got taken down almost in that last octagon fight I watched against the former UFC fighter, but he got right back up to his feet. So wasn't able to get control, but he did that by using the guy's momentum to sweep him as the guy landed on top of him. He got in the top position. Um, there was one time in that fight where he got taken down and he was stuck in bottom side control, but he waited a bit like 30 seconds to a minute and then just exploded suddenly he's he's very very explosive that and the timing and intelligence on his straight left and his head kicks are his biggest strengths so mike trezano he's fought excuse me a couple fights in the ufc he he won the ultimate fighter though i have to say it was a very very weak season like the best fighter probably to come out of that season was luis pena and we've talked about it. Luis Pena is overrated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He just, just cause he has a cool nickname and the UFC wants to push him. Uh, he handed Luis Pena his first loss. And, that, and right after that, Grant Dawson handed, uh, Chisano his first loss, which Pena had to be taken out of the ultimate fighter because of an injury. So he didn't even fight him in the final. He won a split decision in the ultimate fighter final against Joe Giannetti. And it was, arguable that he could have lost that fight at he could have been scored either way but either way this joe Giannetti guy he's not of anywhere near a caliber that ludovic klein is um and then pena a striker can strike and wrestle and grant dawson really likes to get you on the ground and he did so and choked out michael trezano in halfway through the second round for his only loss in his nine fight career thus far but as for his striking he's aggressive he he pressures guys and throws volume he's not like super sharp with his punches like someone like klein but he strings together combos decently um defensively he holds his hands a bit too low and relies on head movement a bit too much but his head movement is pretty good especially in the luis pena fight when pena had that big reach advantage against him um in the tough finale win, the first two rounds were almost entirely on the ground, not really by his choice. Um, he got taken down but reversed it one time. And so he had control for one round. The other guy had control for the other. It was one-to-one going into the third round. And his opponent, a southpaw who was all about the wrestling, never shot for a takedown in that third round, basically handing him the fight even though his opponent technically landed more strikes. They were all weird just kicks like team kick to the thigh and stuff he was just moving kind of like tony ferguson moves like back pedaling at weird angles and moving his arms in weird directions but it was like he was trying to play tony ferguson while not knowing what he was doing so yeah he pretty much just let trezano kick his legs to a decision um uh, earlier, sorry, earlier I said tr- that fight he arguably lost. It, he, I meant he arguably lost versus Pena. Um, Chisano won that fight pretty clearly, but it, it was gifted to him. He, he didn't face adversity there. In his debut versus Pena in the actual UFC, not in, on the tough finale, he immediately opens with leg kicks. I believe showing he likes to k- leg kick southpaws as he did that to both of those opponents. 
and it wasn't just that uh, the Ultimate Fighter finale where he did it to the guy because he couldn't close range on him. Um, he tried to hand fight a lot versus Luis Pena. He wanted to pull down the lead hand to open up the straight right because of the open stance matchup. Um, it had middling success with it. He countered Pena quite well when Pena got wild and overswung in his strikes. I mean, at that point, Pena was only five fights into his pro career and hadn't faced anyone actually good. I mean, and when I say good, I say that good as in like very much, much even lower UFC level good. Um, he, he was able to counter Pena quite well on a lot of Pena's strikes because he was always swinging and, uh, just fighting a sloppy fight overall. And he still almost lost. Um, Grant Dawson is his last fight where he lost because, uh, Dawson, uh, really was just able to wrestle him quite well. And even though he was getting tagged with, uh, Trezano's jab, which Trezano did a lot of good work with the jab in that fight. It, it was hurting Dawson more than you would expect a jab of that. What, you know, when you see a strike, you can kind of guesstimate how much power is in it. The jab didn't look that hard, but it was hurting Dawson a bit. But I think it was just because Dawson was coming forward relentlessly. He was trying to get the takedown and he did get the takedown. And, um, but, but it was good timing for Trezano to be able to use that jab. Uh, that and his leg kicks are his best. I mean, jab and leg kicks in general are great weapons, but. He's more skilled with those than anything else, although not too skilled. Like, he went away from the leg kicks way too early against Luis Pena. Um, and as far as wrestling, he has okay takedown defense. I mean, I guess not really okay for outside the UFC, maybe, but in the UFC, it's, it's below average because he allowed Dawson to take him down even when Dawson didn't set up his shots at all and was just diving in from far out. There were times when he was controlling Dawson in the clinch. And even then, Dawson still was able to trip him, uh, get the body lock and trip him and fall right into mount. After that, uh, Trezano gave up his rack really easily, flattened out and tapped to the rear naked choke within a minute. So his ground game, jujitsu, isn't that great and his takedown is okay at best. So overall, I do like Klein to win this fight. I think he's a much sharper striker and what I've seen of both of them wrestling, which they're not wrestlers by nature, but if it gets there somehow, I think Klein is the better fighter. Um, so yeah, I like Klein to win this. And if there was more tape of him versus high level opponents going the distance, like if he had fought Shane Young for three rounds, maybe, or had fought another UFC fight for three rounds, I would take this even at these odds. I think this line could easily be around or above 300 because Trezano is nothing special at all to me. He's not the type of guy I expect to stick around in the UFC. Walk plan is he's electric. He's a sharp striker. He gets knockouts and Dana loves knockouts. Um, but we don't know for sure what'll happen if you can't knock this guy out early. I mean, I think he has good cardio from the times so I've seen him get to third rounds, but they were against lower level fighters. Um, Shane Young, I believe is more talented than Trezano, but like, yeah, like I said, if Klein can't knock him out, can he keep the pace for three full rounds? Especially when this guy is going to be leg kicking him a lot and trying to jab him up. I know he can keep pace against these mid-level opponents before, but I would like to see him do it in the UFC before laying this kind of juice on him. But... I do want to take a look at prop bets for this fight because if we can get some plus money on a knockout line because he's only ever had one win on his record outside of the regional scene, not by knockout, uh, I'd like to take that for small money. So let's go here to bestfightodds.com. So we have Klein wins by TKO slash KO or Klein wins inside the distance. 
Um, I want some insurance on in case Klein, I mean, even a, the striker, a striker can always get an opportunistic rear naked choke or guillotine or whatever if they hurt their opponent and then jump on the back. So Klein by TKO or KO is plus 140, but Klein inside the distance you can get at plus 120. So I, and because it's a prop bet and because we don't know all that much about either of these guys, they're both dudes, their career. I think I'm only going to lay half a unit there on Klein inside the distance at plus 120. You can get plus 120 on bet 365 or pinnacle. Uh, plus 115 is on bet online. I'd still take it there. I, I take it anywhere at plus money. If it gets into minus money, I'd pass. Um, but yeah, that's our first bet of the night. Uh, Klein inside the distance at plus 120, half a unit to win a six tenths of a unit. All right. Um, and who, who's up next here? All right. So up next we have, um, Nchukwi versus Junyon Park, which this isn't one I'm going to go that deep into. Um, cause Nchukwi only has five pro fights, but he is massive. He is, he's like the Francis Ngannou of middleweight. And his, the last time out, he went the distance. Uh, like his cardio is there. A lot of these bulked up guys don't have cardio at all, but he seems to have it. It's just he only has five pro fights and he, you would assume as a tank like that, he would be knocking people out left and right. He didn't get that knockout in his first fight against a lower level guy, at least for UFC standards. Whereas Park, although, uh, Park has good wrestling. He, one of the fights he held down a cannon, John Phillips, who was one of the guys Hamzat Shemaev beat up. And this guy just looked like, is supposed to be a boxer. He looked like he had no idea what to do in wrestling and since been cut from the UFC. The one win he had that's good is versus Marc-Andre Berriol, who is not a can at all, uh, but he's also not top level. Um, probably a bit below Nchukwi's level, but we just don't know because Nchukwi only has five fights. Um, I would lean Nchukwi, but um, I'm not placing any bets on this fight is this just enough not uh there's just too many unknowns for a guy with only five pro fights all right the next one is one where i think i see quite a bit of value we have well so it's pronounced benoit but we can pretend it's benoit you can tell, pretend he's brother of the war machine if you guys like uh ryan benoit versus <laughs> aruk adeshev which uh benoit was uh was he, he was all state and a state champion, a national champion. Who knows? In wrestling. Yeah, state champion and state, uh, all state in wrestling, but he didn't pursue that into college. He, it seems, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but it seems like he started MMA right after high school because his first pro fight was at 19 years old only. So, and now he's 31, so he's been doing it 12 years. Uh, made it to the UFC a couple years back. First UFC fight was on the Ultimate Fighter 18 finale in 2013. He's had some unfortunate injuries in that time that forced him to miss all 2018 and all of 2014. Um, and some really scary ones. Like one I heard about was his like bicep was coming up into his shoulder. Uh, the other one, I, I don't remember, but he's looked great since then. So I don't have real worries about them. I mean, he's fought high level guys like Brandon Moreno, who's probably the second, definitely the second best flyweight in the world right now. Tim Elliott, who once challenged for the flyweight title and won the ultimate fighter and is still a ranked flyweight and Alatang Hei Lee, who's a Chinese fighter and he fights at bantamweight. So even though Benoit is only five foot five, he fought up a division at bantamweight against a much bigger guy and only lost by split decision, which there is 
somewhat of an argument for him to have won. I thought he did more damage in the second round, but the judges uh, apparently looked at control time as being more important. This is in 2019 when the new rules were not fully understood by people as how much, as far as how much damage affects things. How much more important damage is than control time or meaningless control time, you know, control time without damage. Um, so let's get, uh, he is on a two fight losing streak. He, he, he lost, he did lose that fight by split decision to Alexang Haley and he lost by unanimous decision to Tim Elliott. Um, but both were very close fights. Hey, and he, and he also lost a split decision to Brandon Moreno back in 2016. Uh, three, his last win in the UFC three fights ago was against Ashkan Mokhtarian, which he got a head kick knockout in round three. It was a really great knockout after a tough first two rounds. Um, he's, he's a short rhythm fighter. He bobs his head side to side and takes small steps forward when he advances methodically. He's orthodox, but he can switch stances. He uses the one, two jab, right hand, straight, right. Very well. Um, in the Mokhtarian fight, he switched to Southpaw quite a bit and showed his straight left. After he broke his right hand early, very early on in the fight, like midway through the first round or somewhere in the first round, after the first round, you can hear him tell his coaches, I broke my right hand. I remember um, that fight. You do? Yeah. Yeah. Down in Sydney, uh, the crowd was, uh, not behind him there, but when he got the knockout, they, they loved it as they usually do. Um, but yeah, so he, he had to switch to Southpaw and, uh, to- pretty much totally stopped using his right hand except for to pump out jabs. He did, he did seem to get frustrated in the first two rounds by Mokhtarian circling around him. He would just circle. Cir- the, I mean, the crowd was frustrated too. The crowd was booing because even though Mokhtarian has connections, I think he trains out of, uh, Australia, even though he's from somewhere in the Middle East. So they, they started booing him and, uh, that created a situation where in the third round he was more willing to strike. But in the first two rounds, Mokhtarian, he just circled, 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 then would dart in the strike. And, and not great combos or anything, just one punch here, maybe one or two, and then out again. Benoit got frustrated, started to chase him around the ring where he did do some damage, but he also uh, got stunned once by Mokhtarian's big left hand um, as he keeps his hands low quite defensively, but then he got uh, Mokhtarian back at the end of the round, so they were each wobbled that round. Um, I believe it was 1-1 going into the third. Um, but yeah, like I said, he keeps his hands low. He relies a bit too much on head movement and sliding out of range, uh, out of like the range of kicks and stuff, but he does have quite good head movement. Like I haven't seen him get caught by many big strikes in his more recent fights. Uh, the biggest one was that one Mokhtarian landed on him and he, he took it like a champ and, and, uh, kept going. Um, uh, the lead left hook is a really good punch as his. He, he check, he uses that as a check left hook, a check hook to get the opponent when the opponent's coming in on entries, which worked a fair bit against Mokhtarian as he was always darting in and out. Um, and his head kick gets up there really fast, like Rosemary Yunus versus Zhang Wei Leaf type of fast and can catch opponents by surprise, especially when he hides it behind the fate with his right hand. So throw the right hand and the right kick at the same time. It's beautiful stuff. And he did that to Mokhtarian. Um, he waited till Mokhtarian, Mokhtarian kept throwing that an overhand left or a straight left. So he waited and kind of baited Mokhtarian into throwing his overhand left. And when Mokhtarian drew his hand back, winded up to throw it, he, he just put the head kick right, right in there in that space left behind by Mokhtarian's left hand, uh, head kick KO and 
clean, just absolutely clean, dropped him, no follow-up necessary. Um, and in the post-fight interview, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I was impressed with his analysis of what happened there and throughout the fight. Um, so I, that combined with the way he set up that KO, I make me think he has a good striking, uh, IQ. So, and, uh, now the Altang Haley fight. So I, it wasn't a surprise he lost. But I mean, I'm surprised he did as well as he did considering the guy had several pounds on him and a couple inches too. Uh, but his power did hold up the bantamweight right out of the gate from the open stance against Altang Haley, the orthodox fighter, or sorry, the southpaw fighter. He came with several body kicks that made Altang Haley noticeably lower his hands and cringe at times. Um, reddened up his ribs. I don't think he hit the liver exactly, but it was the area right around it uh, that was really red and causing Altang Haley pain for the rest of the fight. I do like that he uses body work, and it's not just the kicks. He'll uh, do things like uh, hook to the body when opponents aren't expecting it, when they're close in and comboing, and he's he's throwing a combo. He'll add in a body shot for good measure, which is great. Body, sh- body work isn't used enough in lower-level MMA. Um, he has had a slow starting and low volume problem before, but in the Alatang Haley fight, he had said beforehand that his plan was to not lose on the scorecards because he didn't throw enough and he wanted to throw hard. So he came out of the gate really strong in that fight. His octagon control was great, forcing, uh, and, and intelligence. He kept forcing Alatang Haley to force to that power side when he was in the southpaw stance to throw that. Uh, left body kick because it would make it more powerful and easier to land and as, and straight left as well. Um, and when he establishes that, that power kick to the body or the legs, which he, uh, has kicked the legs sometimes less than he did, does body kicks, but he can use leg kicks. But when he establishes that and then varies the location of it, it becomes extremely dangerous because it can sneak up to the head, get them to lower their hands. Um, yeah, changing the locations of kicks is always gonna reward you with good things. Um, so after the first two rounds, which I thought, uh, Benoit won the first two rounds, uh, but apparently the judges didn't. Alateng Haley wrestled him in the third round, uh, and Benoit was able to get up and avoid damage on the bottom, um, after three minutes of being controlled from a, a bigger man. Um, but the, that and three takedowns there was enough to ice the round, despite ben- Benoit landing triple the significant strikes in, uh, that round. Um, and that was, ar- even though it was a loss on the scorecards, that was arguably his best performance I've seen, including the Maktarian one, because he was fighting a bantamweight who's a great striker, Chinese national team wrestler. I mean, we've talked about Alatang Haley before. We we bet on Dana Batgril at UFC 261, who fought him and also lost, but uh, who impressed me in that fight as well. I, I rate Alatang Haley quite highly, and that's at bantamweight when he's really a flyweight. Um, Tim Elliott... Uh, he, again, I, I thought he could have gotten the nod against Tim Elliott there. He had by far, far more damage landed than Tim. I mean, his strikes were more powerful and I believe more volume. Uh, I would have to check the exact stats for that. But uh, because of a bit of second round top control time that Tim Elliott had, the judges gave it to him, um, gave him that second round after Benoit really won the thir- first round which I thought the new rule should have Benoit winning on damage. In the third round, Benoit looked 
sharper. Like he, he didn't want to let Tim get in and control him, but it, he just didn't throw enough volume and Tim did some kicks from range and, and got a decision there. Um, yeah. So grappling is not that, that much to speak of, just like the last ones. Cause I believe this fight is going to take place on the feet mostly because his opponent, Adeshev is, was a pro kickboxer, but he, he, uh, is able to get his own takedowns by hitting the entries with strikes. I mean, he'll throw a combo, then duck in under the, the counters and take him down. He has good takedown defense of his own. Good enough anyways. He, I mean, Tim Elliott took him down and Alatanga Haley took him down, but those are some pretty high level wrestlers and judo guys. Um, he felt like after the, uh, Maktarian fight, he felt like he neglected his jujitsu for his whole career. So he went to syndicate MMA in Las Vegas, where he seems to have learned a lot. Like, uh, even when Atang Hidley and Tim Elliott took him down, he was able to get up, even if he got taken back down again. Um, against Elliott, he stuffed most of the takedowns, but the one that he couldn't stuff, this is what really impressed me, is he dove to the ground, giving it up when he thought he couldn't stuff it entirely. Um, and grabbed an ankle, trying to get an ankle lock or heel hook. Um, and they forced Elliot to step out and then took Elliot's back. Uh, Elliot got out of that and they got back to striking, but that just showed an improvement from his ground game in previous fights where he didn't have much in the way of jujitsu. Um, he even tried to take Tim Elliott down at one point, but got reversed by a guillotine and mounted, but then again, grabbed a leg, almost got a knee bar himself. Uh, and Tim Elliott was in visible pain. He was, Kind of insane, in my opinion, to not tap to that, but he didn't, and uh, managed to get his leg bent, and ended up in a 50-50. I don't think he's not probably going to be submitting anyone, you know, on purpose, taking them down and submitting them, but he could get things like opportunistic re-naked chokes, or if someone takes him down, he could throw up a triangle or get that knee bar that he tried for there. Um, Yeah, now on to Adeshev, who... I'll say it right from the start. He, I mean, you can look at his record and say three and three. Why is he in the UFC? And you might think, oh, I mean, he's only three and three. He was 16 and three as a pro kickboxer. He was a silver medalist at world kickboxing games, but you don't know who he was kickboxing at. He's from, what is it? One of the, one of the Bekistans, one of the smaller ones. Uh, let me see. He's from. So you don't know what kind of competition he was fighting and kickboxing doesn't always translate anyways. Oh yeah, oh. that's insane now. It's got him fighting out in New York. It doesn't even say. Yeah, yeah. Now there. he fights out of out of New York City. I I I can't remember what country he's from. What flag is this? Yeah, okay. He is from he is from Uzbekistan. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> he he's a switch dance fighter. And after when he got to what was he? I think he was one and one when he went to Bellator. Let's see. No, he was he was zero and one. He lost his professional debut. And Bellator still signed him, I guess, because of his kickboxing pedigree. And once he got to Bellator, he beat up on three total cans. A guy who was 0-1 also, a guy who was 0-2, and a guy who was 3-1. He got uh, two knockouts and one decision. I watched those fights, but... I mean, he did what he was supposed to do against absolute cans, guys whose day job is something like a plumber or a carpenter and fought because maybe they go to a gym and wanted to learn some extra money or they have a dream to be a champion one day. That's like half the Bellator roster. Don't want to shit on Bellator too much, but I mean, it is what it is. That's the truth. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, what is it? The second can that he fought was some wrestler. Was it the second one? No, no, it was the the last one. Tevin Dice, the last one he fought, got hit with everything but the kitchen sink and uh didn't go down, which is impressive enough from him to be that tough. Um, but 
I, in that fight, I was more impressed with Adesanya's wrestling defense than anything. I mean, he shrugged off takedowns, but his power wasn't enough to knock down a guy who had no idea what to do defensively. I mean, the guy was just pawing his hands out there like he was in a chick fight, just trying to slap the air to defend the strikes. And Adesanya still could knock him down there. I think also, now that I'm thinking about that, Adeshev is at a reach disadvantage in this fight. Yeah, uh, he has a 65 inch reach. Benoit has a 68.5 inch reach, although they were both the same height at 5 foot 5. That's a significant reach advantage for Ryan Benoit. Um, so when he got to the UFC, Dennis saw, oh, it's 3 and 1 now after he got three Bellator wins against Cannes. He was a pro kickboxer, uh, two knockouts. Maybe, maybe he can be good. He got, Caleb by Tyson Nam in, in his first UFC fight in 32 seconds. And I mean, there's not that much shame in that Tyson, Tyson Nam is a big power puncher, but I just have, they were fighting and they were fighting at bantamweight, but even though it was at bantamweight, the class above what he normally fights at flyweight, he missed weight. He missed weight for the class above his usual weight class. He looked quite out of shape, like quite chubby, although he looked a lot better in his, uh, UFC flyweight de- debut, he still got basically dominated by Subuderji, Buderji Su. I don't, I don't know which one's the family name, which one's which, you know, right. how yeah. uh, Asian <laughs> names are. Uh, we'll say both just to be safe. Um, but so as far as techniques, Adeshav, Adeshav really likes to just blitz forward suddenly, kind of recklessly throwing hooks. Uh, the one thing I like about it is that he switches stances while he's doing that, like the, the shifting, uh, strikes we've seen from guys like Dustin Poirier and Piotr Jan, but, uh, he, he is kind of wild in there, not nearly as technical as those guys, not throwing, you know, different strikes based on what he's seeing. He just hooks straight up left hook, right hook, left hook, right hook, left hook, right hook. And because of that, that is what made me wonder. Who was he fighting in kickboxing that he got to 16 and 3? Because if you do that in kickboxing, a lot, there's a lot of guys out there that can put you out. Um, but I, I don't know who he was fighting. Um, but when he's not blitzing in, he's almost always backing up and just, uh, waiting for the chance to blitz. Um, and him backing up is something Benoit can really use to his advantage. Um, by just, uh, pushing him up against the fence and hitting him with all he's got. Even though he's not a super big volume striker, he is a powerful flyweight. And he is pretty experienced, I mean, relative to this flyweight division. Um, the way Tyson Nam knocked him out was Adeshev threw a low kick and Tyson Nam just countered it with a right hook. Adeshev's hands were low. Like he, when he threw that low kick, he let his left hand fall down, which you throw in a kick, you should, you should still keep your hands at your face. I mean, you should always keep your hands at your face to defend. Um, yeah. And he also tried to throw a right hook of his own while throwing uh, right after that low kick, which never landed as he was already out cold before it got anywhere near Tyson Nam's face. But like, like I said, Tyson Nam is known as a big hitter at bantamweight. He still, he, he showed really bad form there. Um, and grappling, like I said, he was able to defend desperate takedowns from that guy he was beating up on. Uh, he even reversed one and got on the dude's back and almost re-naked choked him. Uh, then he went for an armbar after that failed. Um, but the armbar failed. He ended up in bottom of full guard, but he did something good after that, which was use an armbar to sweep and end up on top before the first round ended. And then the second round, he just put him out. But all in all, Adeshev, his record really does reflect his skill level, I believe. Um, so, and, and Benoit, He's good. I mean, he's good enough to compete with guys like Tim Elliott and, uh, 
Alatine Haley and Brandon Moreno, or at least the old version of Brandon Moreno. But even that version of Brandon Moreno was still a dangerous fighter, if not the potential champion that he is today. So Benoit is my going to be my other two-unit play on this card, as the odds are really favorable. I got them earlier today at minus 222. Let's check on them right now. Don't want to give you guys something you can't personally bet. You, you uh, got him at minus 222? Minus 122. Okay, yeah, sorry. I was going to say sorry. because it's yeah, okay. 120, yeah. 150, yeah, right 147 here. or something. Right here, bet online, minus 122, which I was surprised it fell. And it still is minus 150 at some books. Um, and I'm, but I'm surprised money came in on Adeshev yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit to make the line fall. It, it opened up a lot of places at like minus 175. So uh, I'm seeing, yeah, minus seeing minus two twenty five on bet online. Um, yeah, it went down, then up and down for a bit, and now settled down at one twenty two. So get in there while you can. We're putting two units on this at minus one twenty two odds. I can. I think I, this should be around can, at least two hundred, maybe two thirty, two forty. I completely agree with that. Uh, it's going to be uh, how I see it as a kickboxer against a knockout guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, you got, against the guy who has Muay Thai but has power, whereas yeah, he, doesn't seem he's to. Uh, he he's got one of those things that uh, I I've told you about lots of times. He he's got the wrestling background, and those guys wrestling backgrounds who turn into strikers, those guys always have great power because they know how to throw with their hips. And, yeah, uh, they yeah, send they the heat. core strength right. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, I don't remember if I actually mentioned this when we started, but now after uh, leaving uh, high school to go to MMA, he started training with a Muay Thai base. So, which so that is his base. He's, uh, I mean, a Thai boxer nowadays, but he has wrestling and jujitsu, like I mentioned. All right, so on to the next one: Dawkins versus uh, Kyle Dawkins versus Phil Hawes. The line is about the same, or at least it was earlier. Uh, so Kyle Dawkins is two inches taller than Phil Hawes, which and he's and he's a great wrestler. He looks for a lot of submissions and usually finds them. He has good takedowns and he has the cardio to roll with someone like Brendan Allen for 15 hard minutes. And Brendan Allen, I mean, we we cast on him uh, for 1.5 units or so the other week. Uh, he he, I think he's one of the best wrestlers. Definitely, I think the best wrestler in and jiu-jitsu guy in the middleweight division that's not ranked maybe even better than some of the guys who are ranked or probably a lot of guys who are ranked other than guys like Brunson and Vittori who are uh wrestling specialists um but yeah they tank uh he went he took down Brandon Allen four times in that fight and they spent most of the fight uh just rolling together in a rest in a MMA grappling match um Dawkins did out control Brandon Allen which is impressive but it was this this sport's about damage, and now landed more strikes, so he won two to one in that fight, uh, twenty nine twenty eight. Um, but yeah, it, it was competitive. It was, it's a fun one to watch if you want to see some high level MMA grappling. Um, so as far as Dawkins is grappling, he is really great at advancing position and getting his submissions, which his favorites are Darces and rear naked chokes. He had five, I mean, yeah, five Darce chokes in five in six, no, four Darce chokes in five cage. Fury FC fights, then one more outside of Cage Fury. That would be, if that was in UFC, that would be more than anyone in UFC history. He also has a similar amount of rear naked chokes on his record. Um, I mean, he's nine and one now. He has one, two, yeah, five Darce chokes, uh, three rear naked chokes and two decisions. So three decisions. So no, two decisions. Said it right the first time. All right. Well, yeah, it just showed he's, and I watched those, uh, Cage Fury FC fights. He's really good at at passing guard 
and getting to where he wants to be, applying top pressure to do damage. Like he, he's great at using his legs, his, I mean, his whole body, except for the one arm that he lifts up to use to get ground and pound in. He showed that also in the UFC against Dustin Stoltzfus, which he won by decision, but he controlled him for much of the fight and landed some, some solid ground and pound while he had Stoltzfus, uh, flattened out in, uh, half guard for much of it, I believe. Um, his big frame at six foot three weighs on his middleweight opponents who are usually more like around six foot, like a blanket. I mean, he fought at heavyweight and light heavyweight at the past. So, you know, he has some strength, uh, but he's obviously slimmed down a lot since those days to make 185 consistently. Um, and really of, of all his fights that I've seen, which is about, I've seen five fights, four, no, six fights, seven fights. I've seen all of his Cage Fury fights plus his contender series and two UFC fights. I've seen two, like two thirds of his career basically. And no one other than Brendan Allen was able to do anything about his top pressure when they got him down and Brendan Allen actually reversed him. But that's, I mean, that's just the high the level that Brendan Allen is. Um, but Allen is about as big as him and he's a lot bigger than Phil Hawes and a better MMA grappler by far. Um, Dawkins is really strong in the clinch. When he gets that body lock, you're not really going anywhere, but either staying there and getting need or going down to the mat with some kind of trip. Um, yeah, as far as striking goes, it's pretty simplistic. I mean, his striking is more than anything a method to get in close and get his takedowns. He's a southpaw. He does have a good straight left. I mean, for, for what he is, which is a wrestler slash BJJ specialist. Um, but he, he'll bounce in and out or not really bounce in and out so much as slide in and out of range. He keeps his, uh, hands up and moves his head a lot. He's defensively, like really defensively responsible, which is going to be important against Haas, who's a big striker. And then when he wants to, he'll slide back into range, close distance with a combo, get the body lock, get the takedown. That's his go-to move. Um, so now we get to Phil Haas who has a 1.5 inch reach advantage despite being two feet, two, not two feet, two inches shorter in this fight. He has a decent coach in Henry Hoof, but I don't rate Hoof as high as other elite or I think Hoof is a good coach. I don't rate him as high as other MMA coaches like Safe Sayud, Trevor Whitman, Javier Mendez as a hobby, etc. He, like you can see with Mar Usman, he trained under Hoof for years. He goes to Whitman and he improves massively in, in under a year. Um, but anyway, Haas has a D1 wrestling background, but he doesn't really use it. He only uses it if he can't knock someone out right away in the first round, which if you look down his record, you'll see all wins except for the very last win in the UFC against Nasruddin Imavov were by knockout or, well, or finish in general. He had one submission, I believe, on here. All of them by knockout in round one and two. His losses, he has one loss by head kick knockout to Julian Marquez, who's a UFC fighter. Just beat Sam Alvey the other week. Sorry, Soft. <laughs> um, Julian Marquez knocked him out by head kick on the contender series. Um, he lost an exhibition bout to Andrew Sanchez on the Ultimate Fighter season 23. And he lost by guillotine choke to some guy, some random guy in a World Series of Fighting. One sec, please drink water. His record, like I said, you'll see all those wins were by way of round one KO, some round two. Um, and he still fights in the UFC like he's down in those lower promotions where he can do that to people, which, I mean, he did do once in the UFC to Jacob Malkoon, 18-second knockout, and he did, did on the Contender Series, but in the Contender Series, you're often fighting, uh, I mean, not total cans, but the odds on the Contender Series will often be like minus 500, minus 600. 
600 because it's clearly a way for Dana to get say, oh, well, this guy, he would think he should be a contender. Well, we'll put him on, give him someone easy. He can knock them out and we can sign him to a contract. So in his, it took him two contender series tries to get to the UFC. He's fought all over Bellator, Brave, World Series of Fighting, um, Legacy FC, but in this back since 2014, but all of these guys, I mean, the guys he's beating are nothing special. I mean, the best record of someone he beat outside the UFC, I guess is four and one. There's a six and three on here. There's a six and 11, 11 and seven, 13, 10 and one. You, you get the idea. He thinks that he can still knock people out in the UFC by windmilling overhand rights, which that's what he loves to do. He thinks he's, I think he thinks he's Francis Ngannou because he doesn't throw that, that haymaker with any, any sort of technique. He, it really looks like he's windmilling his arm, like a girl softball pitcher or like when Francis Ngannou went after Jarzinho Rosen's strike and knocked him out just with no technique, rushing forward, swinging his hands wildly. But he's a middleweight. And although he does have power in that right hand, he is not going to be able to consistently knock guys out in the first round. And you can tell that his cardio has suffered for it. I mean, this is a narrative that I've heard that his cardio is awful. It's not as awful as people make it out to be. His most recent fight, he did go the distance, but you can see him clearly. And that was uh, four months ago, early 2021, but you can clearly see him slowing down. He won the first two rounds easily after he realized he wasn't going to land that overhand right. And the other guy could strike with him. He was like, all right, I'll take him down. I'll use my D1 wrestling. Um, so he does have a wrestling level. He's wrestling of a certain level, but this guy who's fighting is not of a level near Kyle Dawkins. And right. uh, I think he's just a kickboxer. I don't believe he has that. I mean, he's a French guy. Most of these French guys are not wrestlers. They're, I mean, countries like France and uh, England don't have the wrestling um, infrastructure that we do here in America. So... Anyway, Phil Haas was able to take him down, keep him grounded for most of that fight. <clears throat> after, right after he got a lot of hype from knocking out Jacob Malkoon in 18 seconds. Um, which actually, I want to go through that KO real quick. He KO'd Malkoon, which it was Malkoon's fifth pro fight. Um, and he, Malkoon really only got the UFC because he's a teammate, training partner of Robert Whitaker. Although he has put on some okay perform, like last, he beat Abdul Razak al-Hassan last time out. We lost betting against him, actually. Um, but yeah, he, he, what he did against Malkoon was consistently faint the jab. He just faint the jab, faint, 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 faint. And so Malkoon was, Malkoon was focused on that left hand. Then boom, windmill overhand right, knocked him out. So really, for Do- the, the path to victory here for Dacus is really clear. He's just avoid that overhand right early, which he telegraphs it. He throws it way too. I mean, it's strong, but it's slow because of the motion it takes, like the windmill. And he's not nearly as fast or strong as someone like Francis, who can can get away with doing that. And that's against heavyweights. Middleweights are much faster. Yeah, he's a yeah, uh, like pause is yeah. a kind of version of like a Chuck Liddell and Hendo. You kind of know what's coming. You know, always what yeah. he's trying to land. Yeah, always out over him, except for. I mean, those guys could go more than one round. More, like, yeah, they yeah. They both had rounds. way better cardio, but yeah, yeah. But you know what? You know what to avoid. There's one thing yeah. to stay away from. But so basically, his last fight. I mean, he was trying to take him off, off down, and he did a bit, but it was more of him Kamaru Usmaning him by and what's well, Usman's obviously different now, but I'll still use Usman as a verb to mean uh, clinch, fuck him, hold him up against the cage in the clinch, and you know, do foot stomps, elbows, taps to his 
ribs to, to keep the ref from pulling him off. He did that for a round and a half uh, against the Simovov guy once he realized he didn't have much of a striking advantage. Um, and he was connecting with his setup strikes, you know, the jab, uh, hooks, stuff like that, but he could never land that haymaker. I mean, in, in that fight, actually, Haas was the one who got hurt. Imavov, Imav, uh, Imavov wobbled him in the second, uh, round and the third round. Haas used the reactive takedown to avoid a striking, that, that the striking exchange. Once he did get hurt by Mavov's hands, which was smart, uh, he was able to, you know, get back into the clinch and, and, and rest until the end of the, until the end of the second round, which he was clearly up two rounds. But in that third round, he was, he wasn't like totally gassed like some people are, but he backed up the whole round banking on the assumption that he won the first two rounds. He also got wobbled and he would just try to avoid Imavov until he couldn't and then just lean into a clinch, which Imavov couldn't break that clinch to save his life in the first two rounds in the third round. Imavov was able to push it, just brute strength his way out, even if he didn't have underhooks or anything. Um, and the set, the second time he got wobbled, Imavov hit him with a knee on one of those clinch breaks. And really, Imavov might have finished it if he kept striking him, but Imavov, for God knows why, he clinched up. With, with like 30 seconds left in the fight, and Mavov clinched him where he'd been losing the whole fight instead of continuing to strike him. I mean, Mavov could have gotten the finish, but he didn't. But yeah, I mean, that just shows his chin is hittable, uh, and not, not the strongest in the world. I mean, the, the, uh, Julian Marquez fight on the contender series in 2017 also showed that. Uh, and also, you just excuse my nasally voice. I'm all kinds of stuffed up now. Um, but. Yeah, so overall, Phil doesn't have enough setup strikes. I mean, he really just throws the jab with no real intensity. I mean, it's clearly feinting it and then throws the haymaker. Sometimes he'll use low kicks, but like, he, he would use it early against Imavov and then totally got away from it for the rest of the fight. Um, so to beat him, you just have to, and especially if you're Kyle Dacus who has high level, I don't know what belt, I, I, I could look it up real quick, but it doesn't really matter to me because I know Kyle Dawkins' jiu-jitsu is of a fairly high level. I don't think he's a black belt because he's very young. It takes a while to become a black belt, but his jiu-jitsu is very good, suffice to say, and his takedowns are, are quite good too, um, showing my fact that he got four against Brendan Allen. Um, yeah, so the only time I've seen his wrestling, despite having D1 wrestling pedigree, is in that Amava fight, and I've never seen his defensive wrestling. No one that I've seen has ever shot a takedown on him. I mean, I couldn't find all of his fights because some of them were in tiny promotions like Global Knockout, whatever that is. Um, but yeah, I've, ne- I've never seen anyone actually shoot in on him. So I don't know how good his takedown defense is. That is the question mark in this fight. But Dawkins is such a good wrestler, is bigger. It actually sets up his takedowns. Um, and the one thing that Oz has shown to be good at is the clinch. I think Dawkins totally negates him because Dawkins is taller. He can, uh, you know, use more leverage by, you know, putting his feet further away from the cage and leaning on him with good head position and underhooks and until he gets that body lock. And when he gets that body lock, he almost always takes you down. Um, but yeah, when he, in the times I did see him in top position versus Imavov, he wasn't able to do anything. He wasn't able to pass. He wasn't able to posture and land ground and pound because he is too busy trying to keep the top position. If he tried to get up a little bit, you know, just elevate one arm and lay a ground and pound, even against the guy like Imavov, Imavov was able to scramble out of there, heist and get out, something to that effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he did control him in the clinch, so he is strong, but I feel like Dawkins 
who used to fight at heavyweight. His brother is a heavyweight and trains with a heavyweight. So, I mean, so he trains with a heavyweight on the regular. I feel like he'll be used to that power and his size is greater than Phil Hawes. I mean, Hawes relies on his overhand right and his power to do everything. So he, just overall, he has less ways to win. If he, if he does try to take down or clinch Dacus, I don't think it's going to go well for him, especially because doing that, he's going to have to win by decision if he's going to try to wrestle him and he guesses out, uh, Dawkins doesn't. So, um, so let's look at the odds as always. Earlier it was minus 122. Let's see if it's still that. All right. So we've got, yeah, minus 122 on sports bet up to minus, uh, the worst is minus 139. Generally it's around minus 125, 130, which I'd still take. I think this should be like, a 170 line maybe so i see uh, around there uh, maybe as high as minus 200 just because of all the ways god dog is win. i mean phil haas has one hit ko power but he doesn't set it up well enough um so yeah uh sports bet is minus 122 and i'm recommending a one unit bet on kyle docus here at those odds all right so on to the next the next one's big ben isn't it yeah big ben rothwell versus philip lins philip lins i forget how you say it um yeah i mean lins is on back-to-back losses uh decision to arlovsky which doesn't look great at this point in arlovsky's career and a ko from Tanner boser doesn't look that bad really boser has power and he has a mullet which you know as we all know gives fighters extra power He's not a bad fighter, despite being 0-2 in the UFC. I mean, well, I guess he technically is because most heavyweights are bad. But as far as heavyweights go, he's not a bad heavyweight. Um, but Rothwell, and Rothwell is getting up there in years. Um, and his weakness is mainly that he can get outpointed by guys who fight smart and don't, you know, don't brawl with him, who who dart in and out and strike with him, which I feel like Linz has the ability to do if he fights smart and doesn't get caught or anything. Um, but Rothwell has wins against guys like Ovin St. Preux, Stefan Struve, uh, The Ream, Barnett, Mitrion, Brendan Schaub. Vera. Yeah. 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 He's beat, so, some, he's beat he's some real guys. Legends. Yeah. But it's, he, I, I don't know what kind of shape he's in at this age. Um, one second, let me check the last time we saw him fight. While you're checking the last time, it is worth mentioning that Ben Rothwell is just one of the nicest, best, you know, he's a good guy in all of MMA. Oh yeah, I like Ben. So, you see, he has, he also, like, he has that win against OSP, which was a split decision, could have gone either way last year and Struve before that, although that's when Struve was kind of already halfway out the door. Before that, lost to Arlovsky, lost to Ivanov, Bulgoy Ivanov, who, I rate about the same as I rate Philip Lins. Lost to JDS in 20, was, uh, before three year break in 2016. And before that was his really great round against Vera, Reem, Mitrion, Barnett. Um, but anyway, in his last fight, he lost to Marcin Tybura, who's a decent heavyweight again. Probably a bit better. Yeah, definitely a bit better than Philip Lins. But just overall, I don't see a clear, clear, like I think Rothwell's the better fighter. But, I mean, he's more than 40 fights into his career. He's 39 years old. Philip Linz has youth on his side. Will Rothwell has experience on his side and proven himself. Um, as well as a slight reach advantage, one-inch reach advantage. I just, I, I don't see an edge here. I mean, Rothwell is, it started at evens. Now Rothwell's like minus 120 favorite, which... Is probably accurate. I mean, I would probably price it personally at Rothwell minus 130, but that's not nearly enough of an edge to, to make a bet on this fight. Yeah. Well, this is how I looked at it. 
Yeah, and everyone sees it the same way. Like, um, if I had, if I were forced to pick, I would pick Rothwell. But if you look at the lines across the board everywhere, it's one of the rare fights where both guys are getting minus odds. You know what I mean? There's no dog in mm-hmm. this fight. They're both minus yeah. all the way across. Which that's actually, I mean, not that, not that specifically, but that kind of epitomizes this card. Which this card only has two fighters that are above minus 200 which is klein as we talked about earlier and our main event which is i think right at minus 200 yeah um and we'll get to that but it is it is an interesting betting card from that standpoint where usually we get cards where there's at least someone who's like minus 400 a couple guys in the 300 or 200 now i think rothwell versus Linz is the first is somewhere on the main card not going exactly in order but just in order of my notes but so next up is uh, Amanda Ribas versus Angela Hill, aka the female cowboy, because she takes every fight. She's the most active fighter in men's or women's UFC. She has the most fights in strawweight history. She is like the ultimate gatekeeper. Oh, one second, pause it again. Uh, <coughs> tell me when you're ready, and we'll just start it over. One second, I need you. Yeah, I'm just gonna start that bit over. I need more drinking more water. Uh, that's better. Um, all right, ready. Go. All right, so next up we have Amanda Ribas versus Angela Hill, aka the female cowboy. Um, Angela, she's, and we call her a female cowboy because she takes every fight. Uh, she fights super often, just like Cowboy Cerrone, who is also on this card, coincidentally enough. Um, but yeah, she has the most fights in strawweight division history. Uh, she fought, what is it? I think she fought eight times in the last two years something insane like that especially yeah, so, for a female mma fighter that's a lot of fights. yeah so okay 2019 four fights 2020 four fights 2021 one fight and this is, will be her 10th fight in the last two and two years and three months that's that's insane i mean that's more than any that's more than like kevin holland fought five times in 2020 tying a record a ufc record but this he, he didn't do it like the same amount that she did over the course of two years this is just insane 10 fights in two years a little under two years two, uh, one year nine months that's that's crazy and i'll always give her respect for that and because i think she gets people underrate her a bit like she has sharper striking that people take and it's she's still improving she looked I mean, Ashley Yoder sucks, but she looked really good versus Ashley Yoder, landing a lot of elbows, stunning her. I mean, she doesn't have traditional KO power. Well, she has a couple on her record. They're all, you know, grounded pound. Like here, Hannah Cypher's grounded pounds. Irene Carnalossi, Dr. Stoppage Cut. Um, <clears throat> those are the only finishes on her record since going until we go back to Invicta days. But she got pretty close to finishing Ashley Yoder, who again, yeah, Ashley Yoder sucks, but still, she looked great. Um, before that, Michelle Watterson lost split decision, which that fight, just rewatched it, could have gone, Angela definitely won the first two rounds, Michelle definitely won the second two rounds, and the, the fifth round could have gone either way, I leaned Angela, the judges saw it the other way, although, I believe one judge scored at 49-46, was that, that's yeah, uh, yeah, I believe, you're right there. And before that, <clears throat> she, she fought Claudia Gadella, Gadea. Fuck, I haven't, she hasn't been knocked on in a while since that fight, I don't think. Anyway, she lost that by split decision, and that one, she definitely won. I mean, I, I bet on Claudia, so I was terrified. I, I'm not not straight. Like, I had her in some dumbass parlay, because at that point, I was I was pretty new to MMA. But, uh, not new, per se, but new to my own MMA bets. 
Anyway, um, she, yeah, lost by split decision where I thought she definitely won. Whatever it is, what it is. She Before that, she beat Loma Lupunmi, which that fight, that win keeps aging better and better as Loma keeps looking great against uh, other girls in the strawweight division, even though she's a natural atom weight um, in, in just her Muay Thai. I mean, I think she's Loma's only UFC loss. Um, yeah, Loma's now three and one in the UFC, only lost to Angela over Kill Hill. Um, and then we go back before that. I mean, then she has a loss to Yan Xiaonan two fights before that, which I think Yan Xiaonan's the next, uh, title challenger once she beats Esparza next week. Um, and then before that, we're getting into like seven fights ago, so it's not really worth going over. Although she wasn't as good back in those days, like she gave up an arm bar to random Marcos, she, which she shouldn't have put herself in that position. But then she lost another split decision, and then she's fighting Nina Ansaroff and Jessica Andrade, which those are losses. But then beating people like Lavinia Souza, Ashley Oder again, uh, Jody Esquibel. So she's fought up and down this division, from title challengers to top-ranked ladies to unranked ladies, ones that shouldn't even be in the division, ones that are getting better and looking promising. She's fought them all. She's fought everyone. But I, I, I really think a lot of these split decisions, which there's three split decisions that went against her and none that went for her, I think at least two of those should have been for her and one could have been for her. Um, the only, like, really, in her last eight fights, the only loss that isn't split is that Yan Xiaonan loss. And Yan Xianan, like I said, next title challenger. She's of a level where, like, she would have a competitive fight with Rose and with Zhang Weili. And I think she's going to tear apart Carla Esparza. Spoiler for next week's podcast. <laughs> or two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, I forgot. Next week we have UFC 262. Anyway, so yeah, at this point in her career, she seems to still be improving. Like I said, her fight versus Ashley Yoda, she showed new levels to her game. Much sharper striking, good clinch work, good stuff with the elbows, especially. Um, yeah. She, she uses the long rhythm that I talk about. She throws hooks. I mean, all of her punches, she gets her head off the center line, but especially I like the hook she does as she dips her head to the side. She can switch stances and when she switch, um, she does switch her right hook becomes her lead, but it still stays her go-to punch, whether she's in the South by Orthodox, that right hook is her favorite punch. Um, she has power for a straw weight. Like I said, she doesn't have knockout. Like power, but she has power. Like, I mean, we're looking at other people on this card. Amanda Rebas, Michelle Watterson, she's definitely more powerful than them. The only one she's not more powerful than is Marina Rodriguez. Um, she, she mostly boxes straight up. Um, but she does use some kicks like low teeps and calf kicks at times. Um, but I think she should probably avoid that versus Amanda Rebas. I'm saying Rebas. I think it's Hebas, whatever. Um, who could use them to take her down, which is what Angela has to avoid in this fight. She has, Angela Hill has 76% career takedown defense. So that is, you know, a promising statistic. Amanda Hibas, though, has a black belt in both judo and BJJ. So this fight, it, it wins depending on where it takes place. On the feet or on the ground. If it's on the ground, Hibas by submission or decision. On the feet, Hill by decision, probably. Um, like, last time out, Hibas got... She controlled Marina Rodriguez for the first round entirely. Rodriguez had nothing for it. Second round, Rodriguez comes out, stuffs a takedown attempt, then hits her and has to finish her twice, really, because Herb Dean did a terrible job refereeing. That was on the Poirier versus McGregor card. But, like, she doesn't have a chin. Rodriguez hit her 
three or four times. I mean, it is Marina Rodriguez. She hits hard. She's had trouble making 115 um, because she's pretty big. She could fight at flyweight probably and do just fine. But yeah, it took her just a minute to get finished by Rodriguez twice. Um, he'll, like I said, doesn't have that same power, but she can hurt Rebots if she forces her to stand with her. She just has to be really careful not to get caught up, throwing too many punches, stick and move, stick and move, and always be aware of the takedown, which she can, it's not like someone like a really good wrestler, like, uh, Chad Mendez, who you have to, yeah, you have to worry about the takedown, but you can't just totally drop your hands because it'll hit you in the face, you know? It's, it, right. Rebots. Hibas does not have hands. She cannot strike. I mean, it's like when she's striking, she looks like uh, Roxanne Modafferi or Demi and Maya. I mean, Maya's even probably too generous for what <laughs> she looks like out there. Ben Askren. Um, but yeah, and, and as far as grappling, though, Hibas is great. Uh, BJJ and Judo, black belt. Um, she has a uh, pretty strong top game and okay ground and pound, even though she has weak hands. I mean, she can keep that top pressure on while applying ground and pound. So something there. Um, there are moments when she postures up that more well-versed opponents could hip escape or get feet on hips. I noticed that a lot versus Marina Rodriguez. She just didn't have the BJJ or ground game to do it at all. Um, she's good at getting underhooks and body lock right away in the clinch, which that'll be important as that could be Hibas's best way to take downhill. I mean, it's, that's better for her, especially with her judo background than, uh, going for a straight up single or double legs. I think. Um, so Hill just has to keep her distance. Use, maybe use that teep kick, although keep it from being caught. Use that, use a jab, keep her at distance. And that'll is how Hill could keep the fight standing and win this. Um, which is why I think Hill has some value as an underdog here. She, my notes say plus 160. Let's check the latest odds. Angela Hill, plus 160 on Bet Online, plus 162 yeah. on Pinnacle, plus 160 on Bet DSI. 175 on 365. Oh, I got, I'm oh, really wait, crashed. wait, yeah. No, 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 no wait, wait, I, I was looking, I was looking at the wrong one. Hold on. Okay. No, it's, yeah. it's 150s basically across the board. Yeah, but yeah, so I, I, I chose Bet Online best odds other than Pinnacle, which I don't have. But so yeah, I'm plus 160, but I think there's even more value to be had here because I don't, I don't see, uh, Angela Hill getting her out of there really in any way. I, I don't see this one. I think the only way this fight ends inside the distance is rebus by submission. So I even, I only want to put half a unit on this because I think it's just a value play, you know, like a, a 50-50 coin toss. Maybe even I would probably favor Hibas, but only a little, not minus 180, minus 175 like the odds have it, maybe like minus 125. So it's a value play. I want to play half a unit, and I think there's enough value on Hill by decision. So we look across the board. Vet365 has plus 300. <clears throat> so, and um, I mean, even Betway has plus 275. William Hill plus 275. Oh, here. Sports bet plus 290. So I don't, I don't have, um, bet, bet 365. It's not legal in the United States. It's not, you can't use it in the United States, but I do have sports bet. So <clears throat> I'm going to give out the play as half a unit on Hill. Uh, by decision at, yeah, at plus 290. All right. So there you go. I think, um, I think that's a good one. And I'll tell you what, normally I would not put my money on Hill, but I like that bet. 
I, yeah, and also, um, I'm the biggest, worry, well, obviously, biggest worry is takedowns and stuff, but the only thing is judges have tended to screw her in the past, but, you know, we gotta go where the value is. <clears throat> so, a couple more fights to get to. Only, I'm not gonna talk about Cowboy versus Morono in depth, because Morono is coming in on short notice. We don't know what kind of shape he will be in, uh, and the odds are just, I think the odds are fairly appropriate. <clears throat> Alex Morono is a simplistic striker. I mean, he looks somewhat awkward doing it. What he wants to do is strike to get in close range and, and take you down and put you in the clinch, which all of Cowboy's recent opponents, which he's on a technically a five-fight losing streak. I mean, he lost four, then had a draw against Nico Price, which Nico Price had a point taken away for an accidental eye poke. Um, so, but Cowboy technically lost that two to one, just the eye poke. Um, and it was overturned to a no contest because... Nico Price tested positive for <gasps> marijuana. Oh no! <laughs> um, and that was that was interesting. That was that was a tough thing. Like I felt bad for Nico Price because I mean it wasn't a win, but still I felt bad because he got a suspension. Even though like the next week or two weeks later, um, the gaming commission or the 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 you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, the athletic the, commission. The, the, yeah, athletic commission, not gaming commission. Athletic commission. Right after that, in Nevada was like, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't punish people for smoking weed. No, it, <laughs> but it was like too late for him. He was already on a suspension. Right, anyway, you really shouldn't. Well, just real quick, you shouldn't because like, uh, if you train in Michigan here where I live, it's totally legal here. So why should people be? Yeah, it's not performance enhancing. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. But we digress. Um, his, those opponents, all of his last five opponents were really dynamic strikers. Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, Conor McGregor, Anthony Pettis, and Nico Price. Even if Pettis is past his prime. Also, I think Cowboy won that Pettis fight. Yeah, I do too. I was, I was very mad about that one. I mean, the refing, first of all, is bad. He got clearly poked in the eye and the ref didn't see it and, or just didn't think it worthy of stopping the fight. It was a really bad eye poke too. Yeah, and that's right. I wanted to mention, uh, that I thought that was a bad eye poke. I can't believe, you know, that he didn't see it. He couldn't open his eye after that. It was towards the end of the fight. I, if I remember correctly, but yeah, but then even on the judges' scorecards, I thought he should have won even then. Um, but I think it should have been a point taken away from Pettis, so it should have been a draw at worst. Whatever. Again, I digress. Yeah. So Pettis and Nico Price was one of the more unorthodox strikers at welterweight, where Cowboy now spends most of his time. Um, and yeah, like I said, Alex Morono is not that. I think he wants to get you to the ground, but Cowboy has great takedown defense. I dug through his fights to see where when he's been taken down. Last person to take him down, Mike Perry in 2018, and Cowboy su- submitted him with an armbar. And in the, his entire UFC run, which he has the second most about to be tied again for most fights in UFC history, he has never had more than one takedown landed on him in a fight. The last person to get more than one on him was Benson Henderson in the WEC. So that that's just pretty big right there. I, I don't Morono isn't as good a wrestler as some of these guys that Cowboy has fought. I mean. We're looking at Matt Brown here. He knocked out Matt Brown. Matt Brown was only able to take him down once. We're looking at RDA here. Um, Benson Henderson again. Eddie Alvarez. Jim Miller. None of these guys. Um, Mike Perry has actually turned into a decent wrestler. None of, Ally Kinta, none of these guys were able to take him down uh, more than once. If they even did take him down once. Most of them didn't take him down even once. It was mostly scrolling down his stats list. It's mostly zeros as far as takedowns against him. So I I don't think Morono's going to be able to take him down this line. When I first saw it, I don't know what it truly opened at, but when I first saw it, it was minus 130. I would have been all over that 
I would have probably played that for a unit. But now Cowboys at minus 190, which I think is a bit appropriate. I mean, he's on the decline. This it, There's talks that this is his last fight and like this is his going away party. And that's why it was supposed to be against Diego Sanchez. Um, but who knows? You know, you, well, I, I just I can't justify taking him at minus 190. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if it's his last fight. Is this the last fight on this present contract he has if it is i, I don't know i don't know it's just, i just know what people are saying yeah i, I think i don't know about his contract right i think he'll probably fight out his contract he won't resign he's getting old but uh he's uh yeah. he's probably my favorite my most favorite fighter ever who's never actually held a ufc belt you know what i mean yeah. i love him he's fought yeah. uh, you look at who he's fought it's a who's who of the division you know what i mean he's fought yeah of two everybody. divisions really yeah of two divisions 155 and 170 you know yeah, it's a who's who. He's he's a legend, uh, and uh, uh, worth he noting. Took every fight, he never declined fights. No, there was one time when he fought eight times in a thirteen month period. Yeah, and Insane. his his loss to Tony Ferguson was a doctor stoppage. It wasn't like he was done. Yeah, it got it got yeah. called on him. Um, Although right after that, the Gate G and Connor fight ones, those were brutal. Yeah, Gate and Connor are brutal strikers. What's what's the uh, what's the prop on a cowboy knockout? Because that might be value. Mm, I don't. So I don't. I don't know if that is. I, I, one second. Let me. Like the last time Connor got a, or he got a knockout. He knocked out Alexander Hernandez. But that's. It's been several fights. I and I, I, this one is kind of predicted to go the distance. Let me check though. Um, Cowboy by knockout is plus five hundred on Bet Online. Uh, I'm not personally playing that. Like because I because uh. I do think this one goes the distance. All right. Well, this is the smell test bet. I'd put a half a unit on that. All right. That's that soft lean for the night. Um, but yeah. So that that's that for the co-main event. Which you'll notice I skipped over Magni versus uh, well, Neil versus Neil, Jeff yeah. Neil versus Neil Magni because I'm gonna consider that the main event for the purposes of this episode because it should be. If not CDF versus Gillespie. Anyway, so on to Watterson versus Rodriguez. I have, uh, I won't wrote down way more about Watterson than I wanted to. Um, I'll start with Rodriguez. She has a Muay Thai background. Um, her only loss is a split decision to former champ Carlos Barza, who's a great wrestler and was able to take her down. As far as striking, she's a really powerful striking striker for her size and for her gender. Um, the bizarre sequence I thought referenced earlier when she had a knockout, uh, Ribas, Kibas twice in a row because of Herb Dean. She knocked her down and was hitting her. She wasn't defending herself. Herb Dean stepped in, didn't wave his hands through or anything, but he bumped into her a little bit. Um, uh, what's her first, what's her name? Uh, Marina thought it was over and, and ran around the octagon. Then she, she looks at Herb Dean and he's like, it's not over. And she's like, <laughs> she's pointing at him. She's like, you, you, you touched me. He, he's like, it's not over. So she comes forward, knocks out. He bats the second time. Um, yeah, that fight was she, crazy. She, yeah, but she has legit power, fight ending power for a 115 girl. I mean, really, at 115, the only girls who have, who have been seen to have a lot of power are, are Rose, Zhang Wei Li. I mean, even Joanna doesn't, Joanna doesn't have knockouts like that on her record. You know, she has a lot, a lot of decisions. <clears throat> She's more technical than powerful. Yeah, her even her knockouts have been by volume, <laughs> not by just you know like severe power. Like Joanna just hits you a hundred times. 
Yeah, exactly. Like the one against Esparza. Esparza didn't even really go down when Ioana took the title from her, but she was getting battered to a pulp. Um, but yeah, so now, so she has three inches of height and reach on Watterson. But cardio is a question. She has faded in third rounds before. She said in an interview with Sherdog that she has to pace herself because it's a five round main event. Um, and, but her camp was the one to request that this be fought at 125, which makes sense. She's a lot bigger. It's a short notice. So she won't have to cut. We'll see how much that affects her cardio. Also, she'll be quite a bit bigger than Watterson, who has fought at Adam Weight in the past, although not in the UFC, because of course there is no Adam Weight division, which maybe we'll get into that another time, but there should be. If, if there's a featherweight division with like three fighters, there should be an Adam Weight division where you could easily fill out a top 15, whatever. Um, yeah, so she said <laughs> in an interview she'll pace herself, but we'll see. I mean, if she paces herself too much, she might not have the volume to win a decision. Um, she is, her big weakness though is being controllable on the ground and having only 59% takedown defense, average of two takedowns against her per 15 minutes. Um, Watterson doesn't have the top pressure or takedowns of Carla Esparza or Amanda Hibas, but still, I mean, she does shoot enough that it could, it, it's interesting. I mean, let's, let's go and look at her numbers as far as takedowns. All right. So, yeah, Mahina Rodriguez. So one thing of note is Michelle Watterson has a negative landed differential per minute. She absorbs 5.11 strikes per minute and lands 4.47. So she's getting hit more than she's hitting, whereas Marina is landing 4.59 and getting and absorbing 2.43. But Marina is much newer to the UFC and hasn't fought the same level of competition. Um, Mahina's takedown defense, like I said, she gets taken down twice per 15 minutes. On five attempts per 15 minutes, Michelle Watterson lands 1.41 takedowns per 15 minutes on 4.74 attempts per 15 minutes. So she's not, that's enough volume that she tries, but she only lands one to two per fight. But one to two per fight, that could be enough for her to win a round or two there, which would be significant, especially with Marina fading in the later round. So I give Marina a, a fairly big striking advantage, but, <clears throat> and especially a power advantage with the hands, but Michelle Watson's a point karate fighter. She knows how to win points, even if she gets memed a lot for, for jabbing people from eight feet away, basically shadow boxing. It is quite comical <laughs> when you see her do that in fights, like jabbing from not even the point where it's a range finder. It's just, what are you doing? But I, I think those memes kind of uh, make people think she's a worse fighter than she is. She's not great, but she's decent. Um, she, she has the advantage in cardio having gone 25 minutes a couple of times and in the takedowns, uh, or ground game in general. Um, one thing she is known to get, this is a shout out to Full Reptile, Dan Hardy, and his friend, um, that pointed this out. Michelle Watterson is known to get caught with a kind of a twisting overhand, which is something Marina Rodriguez throws. It's what she stopped Rebus with, the first one that caught Rebus and really rocked her. Um, especially when she's throwing punches that, that, I wrote here, phantom jab, jabbing at ghosts. She really leaves herself over the top for hooks and overhands, but she doesn't do much with her hands other than jabs. Most of her kicks are, most of her attacks are kicks. I mean, she switches to southpaw, she's going to throw side kicks, and she stays orthodox, she's going to throw a lot of uh, deep kicks and roundhouse kicks. Um, and leg kicks as well. One thing I do, one of the, my favorite things about her is she ends her com, technically, is she ends her combos with leg kicks. I like that too. Great, though. I think yeah. more, more fighters need to do that. Yeah, exactly. But, um, 
her defense isn't great. She's sporting a 50% strike defense. And like I said, getting hit more than she's hitting people per minute. Um, uh, yeah, because her defense is sloppy. She often gets hit in the face with punches when her hands are at her chest that she's too late to react to block or parry. If Marina shortens her punches, Instead of going for the big knockout punch, she could do, even though what I said about the overhand right, she could do a lot of damage that way, point, points wise. Um, sometimes Michelle Watterson's footwork gets sloppy when she blitzes with combos, and I've seen, even seen her feet cross, which is the biggest no-no, you know, in striking. And in, and in wrestling as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're just so off balance when your feet cross yeah. that uh, you can just get pushed in the chest and fall over. Exactly. You can get hit with just a jab and be knocked out, knocked over if your feet cross while you're striking. But yeah, there's uh, like, like the, the, it's pretty clear here, you know? Um, like, uh, Michelle Watterson was one for 18 in takedowns versus Angela Hill, but Angela Hill has much, much better takedowns than, uh, Marina Rodriguez, who was taken down by, uh, almost everyone she's fought, even, I mean, the, and Hibas was the first, like, what I'd consider high level, and by high level, I mean ranked or deserving of being ranked fighter in the, uh, and Carla Esparza, which, of course, she lost to Carla Esparza. Actually, no, no, I was wrong, I forgot. She, she drew with Cynthia Calvillo, uh, and beat Tisha Torres. So she has faced some high level, higher level fighters. Um, but, uh, Esparza is the highest, followed by Michelle Watterson, I would say. So, and, and just the five round nature of this one. And the three rounder, I would definitely, definitely favor Mahina Rodriguez, but Michelle Waters in over five rounds, that's a much tougher one. I still think Rodriguez wins, but there's a lot of questions with it being short notice. Who knows if they were in training camps? I couldn't find any information about if either of them were training for this. It's being fought a weight class up. Um, again, we, we too many unknowns for me to take a stab at this. It's kind of a dogger pass situation, even though I think Rodriguez wins. Her odds are minus 200, minus 210, and I'm not laying that for her when there are so many flaws in her game that Michelle Watterson could exploit in a five-round fight. All right, on to um, this happened last week as well, the people's main event, right? Yeah, uh, yep. Or, now, we yeah, we so would have had a great or... we would have had a great main event, but it was canceled. Yeah. So this is really the big fight on the card here. Yeah, along with CDF versus Gregory Gillespie, which we covered in part one. Check right, it out if right. You yeah, that'll be the best fight of the night. But this is the top of the card one. Yeah, so it's the battle. That who whoever wins this gets to keep the name Neil Jeff Neil versus Neil Magny. Neil Magny is a pressure fighter. You know he'll. Uh, strike at you kind of not the most efficient striker or powerful striker at all but he'll use that 80 inch reach to jab you keep you out range until he wants to close in he's, he's like he's like izzy at middleweight or john jones at light heavyweight it's unfair how skinny and long he is he's 6'3 with an 80 inch reach at welterweight izzy's like 6'4 with a similar reach at middleweight you know same idea um guys like jalen turner at lower weight classes or luis pena although luis pena sucks um, they, these guys with the long reach, but the, unlike these guys, Magni isn't a kickboxer. I mean, well, John Jones isn't a kickboxer, but he can strike. Um, but the, that reach and size does also help you in grappling. I mean, you can get, do things like the Dagestani handcuff by reaching around and grabbing your opponent's wrist much easier. When you have that reach, you can, uh, get body locks much easier. All kinds of things become much easier with that super long reach. Um, he wants to, but yeah, he wants to back his opponents up to the fence, clinch him up and take him down or just hold them in the clinch. 
and and Neum. I mean, he's a long, long time UFC veteran. He debuted on Ultimate Fighter 16 back in 2012. He's been in the top 10 for a good part of his career. He settled somewhat as a gatekeeper, like he can't get past someone like Kiesa, but he will beat guys below him, like uh, Li Jing Liang, yeah, um, can, can, Kameen, it, Hector Lombard, Kelvin Gastelum at one point. Can I interject yeah. here? Because, yeah, um, I, I've told you before that I used to be on the Magni train big time. You know, I was a big fan of him. I thought he had a lot of hope. But he strings together a bunch of wins against names, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. That you would feel good about, you know, and then uh, he lost to Maya, and then he beat, beat Silva, Gastelum, Lombard, Larkin, Hendricks, and then he lost to RDA. Then he beats... Uh, Condit and White and loses to Ponzinibbio. You know he's yeah. He I don't know what it is. I, I've always had high hopes for him, but whenever he gets to that point, just something happens. Yeah, like uh, this last fight against Kiesa that he lost is a good example. He fought the stupidest fight possible because it's possible that he could have outstruck Kiesa with his reach, and but he kept he even though it, it, over each round he would get into the clinch. Kiesa would take over and take him down and get on top or just control him in the clinch. Kiesa was clearly better than him there, but he kept going back to it. He wouldn't change his game plan. So, yeah, I don't think that'll have that much effect in this fight because Jeff Neal is a striker and a good one at that. But still, it uh, it just shows his failures in, in big fight situations. Um, right, yeah, maybe Ponson it's maybe in it's, that Ponzinibbio fight, Ponzinibbio beat the crap out of him. Right, maybe it's his his, his coaching, his game plan. I don't get it because, like I said, I just mentioned it, but I've told you previously in the past, I had really high hopes for Magni. Yeah, yeah. All right, back with but, your analysis. Yeah, but so back, like you were saying, I mean, it's always the top guys who get on a good win streak, like Gaslam, Hendricks, and then lose to somebody. The past four years, he's only lost to. Kiesa, Ponzinibbio, and RDA, which they were all top contenders at the time, or still are, except for in the case of Ponzinibbio. But he had an injury that messed up his career badly. Um, and going even going back to 2014, only Demian Maia and Lawrence Larkin have additional wins over him. Um, and Neil one thing he's known for is his cardio. He has great cardio. He can go five rounds, no problem. If it was a five-round fight, I'd favor him more, but... This is a three-round fight, so that cardio may not be as much of an impact. Um, his reach naturally makes his jab effective. I mean, if you have an 80-inch reach, you better have a good jab. He has a lack of power and sharpness slash efficiency in his striking. He's more of a volume striker. Like, think of a, a, a Paulo Costa, though that's not great because Paulo's really powerful. Think of a Marvin Vittori who doesn't have great power, but surges forward with volume and then takes you down. You know, that that's Neil Magny, except for... Well, Victoria's pretty good cardio too, so that is a pretty good comparison, I feel like. Um, it's easy for him to get knees, like hit people with knees because of his height and length. Um, but as far as striking, it's not, it's, it's, I said this about Victoria too, meat and potatoes. You know, it's, it's just the basics, using his length to keep people at bay when he, they want to hit him and when he wants to clinch, using it to get in there. Um, as far as grappling though, knees and elbows, and the clinch are a big part of his game, and he always stays active there. I mean, the clinch can be one of the most boring places a fight can take place if it's, like, Masvidal versus Usman 1. But, like, him in... What was that fight? In his fight versus... Versus the leech, uh, Li Jingliang, he, he, he did some really, really beautiful stuff in the clinch with knees and elbows and throws and takedowns. I mean, just mixing it all up together really, really well. Um, and because of his height, he can land, like I said, he can land those knees. 
and he he can also bend at the knees to generate force, you know, to have that leverage and still be taller than his opponents leaning on them. Um, long arms and legs are just as much of a benefit to, his, to him on the ground as they're on striking, especially because of his striking limitations, but they uh, enable him to, to get ground and pound, to be able to control his opponent with one arm and the, his whole body and get ground and pound when it would take a lot of guys, you know, both arms. Makes it much easier to slide hook in, get his arm around opponent's necks, etc. Um, he times his level changes really well with combinations to get deep in on takedowns. You know, throws a couple punches, ducks under when they try to counter, which I mentioned this before, forget about who, and, and take him down. Um, but yeah, overall, clinch work is his path to victory, uh, slash takedowns. But Jeff Neal has great takedown defense, and he's which we've seen a lot of, like Bilal Muhammad shot eight times and didn't land once against him, though Bilal's a good wrestler. He's not as good as Magni at this, but still, it's impressive. Just stuff eight for eight. And the one time that his butt hit the floor, uh, Jeff Neal, he popped right back up, so, you know, can secure the takedown, doesn't count in MMA. Um, but we haven't seen a large sample of work from Jeff Neal in the clinch, but I have seen him do good stuff. I mean, I've seen him, you know, do what you need to do in the clinch. Dig underhooks, turn, escape, or control them with head position and underhooks and land some knees. Uh, but just, we haven't seen him up against anyone like Magni, or we haven't seen as much fight time spent there because he wants to strike as he should. He's a great striker. I mean, he lost his last fight to Wonder Boy. He lost every round, but it's Wonder Boy, you know? Right. And his only <laughs> losses ever are to Kevin Holland in an XKO title fight and Wonder Boy in a, a UFC Fight Night main event. So he's never lost a three round fight. Um, he does give up five inches of reach and four inches of height to Neil Magny, but he, he has a really good coach. He fights out of Fortis MMA like, uh, CDF mentioned yesterday, Carlos Diego Ferreira, um, Safe Saud. Um, due to Magny's experience placed in the rankings and the fact that he's only lost the top guys since 2014, this is a crossroads fight for Jeff Neal. Can, he couldn't beat Wonderboy, but who can? Almost no one alive in a pure striking match in MMA. Can Neal compete, win this fight, then and move up to compete with that second tier of UFC fighters below the top tier that's challenging for the title? Guys like, um, guys like Magni himself, um, Michael Chiesa, Vincente Luque, and uh, this might be controversial to some people, but Masvidal, I, I see Masvidal on that second tier below Edwards and Wonderboy, etc. Um, we'll see, but this, this isn't a bad matchup for him at all. If he can keep it striking, he should do a lot of damage to Neil Magni, who has been beat up by good strikers before. <clears throat> um, he's a clean, straight pressure puncher, Jeff Neal is. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's a southpaw. The straight left is his best punch, especially because he's mostly fighting orthodox opponents. His straight punches actually remind me of Usman a little bit. Um, because he doesn't have any wind up on them. It's, and, and they're all the more devastating because of it. They just come out of the chamber right away. You don't need to cock them back. Um, he's not as powerful as Usman who has, who's, I mean, ripped, so ripped, middleweight size and throws with a lot of power, especially after training under Whitman, but he still does have significant power in that straight left. He uses his jab well as a range finder, utilizes a really good high guard that he's very responsible with defensively. Even when stringing punches together, he, he, you know, he keeps his hands up where they should be when he pulls his punches back. I have seen body work be effective against him. Like that was the only effective thing Bilal Muhammad did against him. Um, but he's, he's really is a complete striker. He's not a world class striker like Wonder Boy, but he's a complete striker, a, a good, 
solid MMA striker who's yeah deserves well, his spot in the rankings. Well, um, two of his wins come by way of head kick, which you know mm-hmm. should shouldn't be underrated. I don't know how well that will do because Magny is so much taller than him. Yeah, but he ab- think- he obviously has that <clears throat> skill set. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the UFC, I got, go, we have to go back. So since between his two losses, Wonderboy and Kevin Holland, there was only one fight he didn't finish, and that was the Bilal fight. And he beat the crap out of Bilal. Bilal was just so tough. But he beat Nico Price by grounding, pounding him from full guard. His coaches, Safe Sayud, was yelling, pass, pass the guard, pass the guard, when he was in Nico Price's uh, full guard. But he he's powerful enough to, to just uh, ground and pound Nico Price out from full guard. He had kicked Mike Perry. In the minute 30 and knocked him out. We know how tough Mike Perry is. See him eat everything and survive. But he knocked him out for those fights. Knocked out Frank Camacho. Head kick, rear naked choke against Brian Camazzi. And then uh, a one two-minute win on the Contender Series. And a four-minute win in his very last LFA fight before coming to the Contender Series and then the UFC. So he is a finisher. Neil Magny's very durable. I mean, he's tough. Let's, last time he was finished was Santiago Ponzinibbio in a four-round fight. Uh, a five round fight and that was in the fourth round. This isn't a five rounder. Um, so the, the big question here is if, well, if Neil can keep it where he wants it, Jeff Neil, that is, can't just say Neil because they're both Neil. Um, if he can keep it where he wants it, can he get the knockout or is he going to have to do, is he just going to damage, uh, Magni into a decision? And the question for Neil Magni is, can he enforce his will and make it the kind of fight he wants a uh, uh, fight close up grappling and preferably with him on the top end of grappling. But I mean, if he has to box with uh, Jeff Neal, I don't see a path of victory for him. He is much longer, but that's not going to be enough for him here. Jeff Neal is, is a legit striker, a uh, complete striker, as I said earlier. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, I have notes about his fights here, but it, it's really, it's really all academic. Uh, grappling is what's going to matter as far as if he can keep Neil Magny off of him. So he let Bilal in deep on two, uh, I think both were single legs, maybe a single and double leg takedowns out of eight. But like I said before, he's able to pop back up by flowing with him. Like he went with him, used Bilal's own momentum against him to sweep him. So efficiently eight of eight takedown defense in that fight. He has a good clinch defense. He's not a massive welterweight like Magny is lengthwise or one or a massive one like Usman is size-wise, but he is strong, like probably bigger than Colby as far as, you know, muscles and overall strength and size. And he has been able to control and reverse guys like Bilal and Nico Price in the clinch. Um, he's especially good versus Nico in the clinch as he wrapped him up with one arm, uh, you know, basically a standing Dagestani handcuff and, and just smashed him in the face with the other one, La- wrapped him up with his left, smashed him in the face with his right while leaning against him with good head position. He also took Nico Price down from the clinch. Um, after, um, he, uh, dropped Nico. All right. So after, uh, Nico Price dropped him and mounted him, which was one of the only moments he was in real danger outside of the Wonder Boy fight. Um, Jeff Neal was able to use his jujitsu to regain full guard, get feet on the hips, push off and stand back up. So I, I like to see that as far as BJJ goes. I mean, Nico Price doesn't have the top pressure of Neil Magny or the length to control, the ability to control guys. Well, that is top pressure. Oh, I'm out of it. Um, anyway, um, Jeff Neal has really strong ground and pound. Like I said, he's able to generate a lot of power in short punches shown when he TKO'd Nico Price from top full guard. But it's just a question of where will this fight end up? The odds, Neil Magny comes back 
Well, let's check. Best fight odds I have written down minus one, plus 160. Yeah, that's, oh, odds have risen a bit. Neil Magny is now plus 165. So that's interesting too. I mean, that, that money's coming in on Jeff Neal, even though he's now at minus 190, minus 200. And I, I tend to agree. I think Jeff Neal can get this done, prob- should get this done. I wouldn't favor him as much as minus 200 though. So it's just a question of, is there value on that plus 165? I'd value Jeff Neal at like a minus 160. So I have to go with Noah that there's not value here. It should be a really fun fight. If you want, place money on, you know, the dog, especially Neil Magny by decision might be the play. He's not a prolific finisher. I mean, what was Neil Magny's last finish? Craig White, 2018 for that. Hector Lombard, 2016. So two finishes in the last five years. And Jeff Neal's a tough guy. That's that's um, where that's where I see the value as well is if if Magny can do clinch work early and land some knees to the body to slow Neil down a little bit, then you know his his cardio he'll still be able to be very active in the end of the second and now through the third. But if he can yeah. do if he can do some body work in that clinch early on, that might give him something. I'm not saying I would bet him either because like I've already said that uh he he seems to disappoint me every time I get back on the Neil Magny train, but I do yeah. see a I do see a path for him, but it, it's a a very a uh, rocky road, right? And it's very focused. He's got to do everything just right, and as you said, he often seems to come out with the wrong game Soft. plan. Yeah, so every time uh, Magny, he just he seems to disappoint me. So I wouldn't necessarily put the money on him, but I do see a path to victory for him. It's just yeah. I agree with you. I, I I wouldn't put the money on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and his path to victory is entirely forcing his will. Jeff Neal's is avoiding it. I mean, he doesn't have to enforce anything. He just has to fight smart and stay out of Magni enforcing his will. I tend to lean with the guy who, you know, can tune the other guy up badly in terms of striking if he's good enough where he, you know, can avoid getting taken down unless he had takedown defense or was terrible in the clinch. Or just, or Matt, if Magny was amazing, like John Jones, amazing in the clinch or wrestling, but he's not. All right. Um, um yeah, so, so it's time for the Bellator parlay section, right? Yes, We're going to make this a regular is. segment when there's a Bellator fight coming up. Is that correct? Yeah, at least if I see it, which usually, I mean, usually there's enough for a small parlay, which, so, okay, so we're starting here. Um, these, uh, I'm not going to look at best fight odds for these. Well, I mean, I could, I don't want to waste too much time on this, you know. I'm not going to give a super big analysis. But, so we got Rumble Johnson here fighting Jose Barros. 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 Um, Rumble hasn't fought since 2017, of course, so this line would be minus 1,000. I mean, he's fighting a nobody, a guy who I think has only one, had one Bellator fight. I'll pull that up. Yeah. Um, here it says Jose Augusto Azevedo Gugu. Okay, yeah, no. Jose Augusto Azevedo Barros. He only has one Bellator fight, which he won. He had two losses on the regional scene um, and was quite inactive before 2017 where he made some kind of return, fought his way out of Brazil regional and got one Bellator fight. So this will only be his second Bellator fight and he's fighting in the light heavyweight Grand Prix. If Anthony Johnson is even a quarter of his former self, he should send this guy into another dimension. 
And if you've seen pictures of Rumble recently, he looks good. He does look like, in good shape. He looks if you and you saw a picture of Yoel, right? Yoel yeah. looks fat. Yoel looks like, like what Rumble used to look like, though not quite as fat. I mean, it depends on which Rumble you're talking about. Yoel looks filled out like what Rumble used to look like, and Rumble looks like what Yoel looked like at middleweight. He looks he's absolutely ripped. I mean, but yeah, his opponent's be nobody good, just one Bellator can is his best fight probably. He's inexperienced. So it's just obvious to take Rumble here. I mean, even after being retired and coming back, I mean he has been training, obviously, because he's so ripped. He's been doing regular grappling bouts like um Submission Underground and Quintet Ultra. He's he's had him against uh King Mo, Hector Lombard, Ryan Bader, Craig Jones, so he is staying in the martial arts world even after retirement, of course. And yeah, so this comeback, he should knock out Jose Barros. I mean, yeah, so that's minus 440. I got that odds. Then Patricky Pitbull, which you should you just have to know him as the lesser Pitbull versus Peter Quilly, Keely, whatever. The lesser Pitbull lost his last fight in a 157 pound tournament championship by decision. Uh, let me remember who that was too. Um, Patricky Pitbull, Patricky Pitbull lost yeah in in a rising 157 pound tournament before that he won three straight in rising before that he won one two three four five straight in bellator and before that is where he got knocked out by michael chandler the next challenger for the uh ufc lightweight title in 2016 before that Derek anderson split decision loss who's good marcin held split decision loss who's good before that, Derek Anderson and Eddie Alvarez, and then we're back in 2012. None of those are really bad losses. I don't know this guy who he lost to in Ryzen, but I, I know if he's at the at a Ryzen tournament championship, he has to be better than Peter Queeley. I mean, Peter Queeley is losing to guys who are 10 and 7, 9 and 9, 1 and 0 in his short career. Or actually, not so short career. One sec. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. He's 12, 5, 1, 1. So, I mean, not that short, not that long, but he's only 1 and 1 in Bellator. Lost to Miles Price, who's 10 and 7. Win against Ryan Scope, but he should be no match for Patricky Pitbull, aka Lesser Pitbull, who has beaten guys like Roger Huerta or the, you know, the aged up version of Roger Huerta, aka the Bellator version of Roger Huerta. Derek Campos, Benson Henderson, well, the aged version of Benson Henderson, Josh Thompson, fought Michael. Chandler, Ryan Couture, fought Derek Anderson, Derek Campos twice. It, it it's not a great resume, but it's for Bellator. It's a good resume, and he is yeah, rightfully like what is he? He's either second or third in the Bellator lightweight rankings. Yeah, that, that's the big names in that weight class in Bellator. Yeah. So yeah. So and he's only minus two seventy five. I thought it'd be like minus four hundred five hundred. So that's an obvious one to add to the parlay. Um, and then one more to get it nearer to even numbers is Patchy Mix, who was the last, um, the last Bellator. Or actually, one sec, back to Patricio Pitbull. The main thing, or Patricky Pitbull, not Patricio. The main thing I count on in these Bellator parlays is one guy being either good or okay, and his opponent being trash, dog shit, a can, maybe a really nice guy, but spends his weekdays selling groceries at Walmart. Right. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's Beltorn matchmaking in a nutshell. Um, then his opponent's two, 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 two and one in his last five against utterly mediocre competition. Um, should be a cakewalk for Patricky. So Patchy Mix was, he, he was in the UFC at five and oh early on. I mean, uh, 
yeah, as a flyweight, it's hard to they bring in guys before they're ready, and that's what happened with Patchy Mix. He proceeded to lose four fights, have a draw, and win a split decision. Um, even lost to some bum in LXF who was eight. Or, no, 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 no. Sorry, uh, I'm. It is too late at night to be doing this. I was talking about Morales there. He got to the UFC at five and zero. The 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 underdog here, Morales, got to the UFC at five and zero. Proceeded to lose four fights, have fights, have one draw, win a split decision that he should have lost probably, and lose to some bum in LXF who was eight and four. Now he's made his way to the UFC or to the to Bellator. This will be his first fight in Bellator. Um, and he unfortunately for him, he's matched up against Patchy Mix, who's you know actually pretty good he his last fight was or his last yeah his last fight was for the bellator bantamweight title against juan archuleta who's the main uh event in this card um that was his first ever defeat before that he had wins throughout bellator rising and kotc stretching back to 2016 which he'd been very active i mean all all 13 of his 14 of his fights have come since 2016. That's a that's a good level of activity. And it only really tailed off in 2020 with COVID. But yeah, his first loss ever was to Juan Archuleta, who's a good champion for, uh, for Bellator standards, you know? Um, so even at minus 900, Patchy Mix is a good fighter. His opponent is not, simply put. Um, so yeah, minus 900, this comes out to... Um, and I'm only putting point for half a unit on this because it's, you know, we're just testing this out or, and I don't want to put heavy money on something that we're just doing for fun because I usually cash them in my personal time, even without doing that much research, that much tape. You don't want to t- take it, don't take it, but putting half a unit to win, uh, 0.43 of a unit. Um, and I also have a lean on the main event, which is Archuleta. He's just the better fighter. I mean, the only person. He's lost two since, uh, he was fighting in World Series of Fighting, uh, when he was five and oh, which now he's 25 and two is Patricio Pitbull when he did the, uh, obligatory thing that all Bellator champs have to do, which is move up the weight division to fight the champion above you because that creates more title fights and Bellator desperately needs more title fights. But yeah, he's beaten Patchy Mix, Henry Corrales, Ricky Bandejas. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's not that many great bantamweights in, in Bellator, really outside of the UFC in general, but he's been a dominant champ in his own weight division, only lost that featherweight. So that's my lean. One Archer Levin, he's like minus 170. Not making it official, just a lean. If you want action on Bellator tomorrow, it's a, it's much worse card than it was when Yoel Romero is going to be on it against Rumble, but it's not bad for a Bellator card. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, all right. Let's get into it then. Uh, well, we'll, we'll go over walking the dog real quick. Yeah. Um, so, cause just say it, cause it's our pick and we covered it yeah. last night on the part one. Well, unless you cover it, we'll go over all our bets just to remind people. But yeah. Um, Carlos Diego Fajera, two units to win 3.1 units at plus 155. Then we have Benoit, Benoit. Sorry, not War Machine. Benoit also two units, which he's Benoit's probably my favorite play since that Robert Whitaker by decision play a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah, two units there at shoot. What did we get that at? Minus one twenty two. Yeah, minus one twenty two. Yep. Then we have uh Kyle Dawkins. No, I almost said Chris Dawkins at my also at minus one twenty two for one unit. Angel Hill by decision point five units at plus two ninety. And climbed by K, uh, climbed by, uh, KO or submission, also known as inside the distance. Anything but climbed by this decision. Half a unit 
at plus 120 to win a six, nope, six tenths of a unit. That's, uh, I don't even need to really go over it because, uh, well, we'll do it. I don't know if yours are any different, but that's my don't be a pussy parlay too. I think, I think those are all solid bets. Oh, no. Yeah. I like to change it up for the don't be a pussy parlay. Well, you can, but those would have been my picks. Gotcha. So I'm going to do Benoit Daukas, uh, one second. Benoit Daukas, Klein, let's find straight up, um, Cerrone and Jeff Neal. That's my. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my a don't better be a don't be a pussy pick. But yeah, actually, I don't know. Not no, not Jeff Neal. I, I gotta stick with my guy Diego Ferreira. That's my don't be a pussy parlay. Yeah, I might also. I might pull one of those out, and I think uh, that Linz and Rothwell close is so fight. I might, you know, in the don't be a pussy aspect, throw Rothwell in there. I like taking okay. the, the little number there, but yeah. Okay, Val, this will be All amazing. Right. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, give our social media stuff and our shout outs to our friends. Yeah, so uh, check out at Spofi on uh, Twitter and check out the Discord server where we post our podcasts. Uh, check out at Numbers MMA on Twitter. Um, and yeah, check out our 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 uh, podcast twitter which is at sig strike pod all right thanks everyone we still don't have outro music but we will get that taken care of at some point um this show has been incredibly long even though it was two parts but thanks for listening everyone and uh we'll talk to you after we win you some money have a good night hopefully all right yeah dude. don't jinx it don't just don't <laughs> don't jinx me soft hey i got right. i gotta sound confident but dude holy shit i'm in uh i'm at two hours and 18 minutes here now there's Jeez. like there's I mean, like yeah there's gonna be a time right there's probably hour, I hope to cut out of that right there's there's a lot of shit i'll cut out but the, the part one was like uh damn near 40 minutes too so <laughs> Jesus, I've got to figure out a way to shorten these. <laughs> I mean, I think the way to shorten it is by talking less about the ones I'm not betting on. <laughs> That's what like, I, I think, had, too. I had a lot more written down for Magni and Jeff Neal, but I was like, geez, we, it's midnight. Yeah, After dude. Night, we've, we've, I've got to end this, so I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the stuff I'm saying. I, on, the, on the first fight, the Harrison Aguilar, we spent 22 minutes on that. And, no, 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 we didn't do that one. No, uh, uh, You mean uh, Klein and, uh, and Trezano, yeah. Yeah. We spent 22 yeah, minutes on that. It, it It's all right. It's Benoit, a work in progress, yeah, but. Yeah. 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 All right, dude. Um, I I will actually have time in the morning around uh, like 